As human beings, we are created to worship. It is one of our most intrinsic attributes as people. And we are molded in such a way that we naturally use our lives to glorify something. Okay, We are molded, we are created in that way. The original intent of creation was that our lives would orient around God himself as our creator. Okay, That we would be in relationship with him, to love him, to revere him, to glorify him with our lives. We can do this in so many different ways. We can, of course, sing to him as one of the most common ones. We praise him with our words, our prayers, our songs. We can serve him as an act of worship, uh, obeying his word, his will for our lives, giving to him, giving of our riches, our, our things, our time, giving of ourselves, really. Everything that we do to give ourselves to God is an act of worship to him. And in reality, we are all worshiping something, glorifying something by loving it supremely. And if we're not worshiping God, then we're worshiping something else. John Calvin once famously said that the human heart is an idol factory, meaning that we incessantly churn out things to worship. We're always inventing new idols in our hearts and in our world around us. And if we don't worship God, we will fill that vacuum with something else. We'll build an idol, whatever that means for us. I doubt, though, that there is any other time of the year that probably exposes our idolatry more than Christmas time. Idols aren't usually associated with Christmas, but maybe they should be. Because Christmas, think about it, exposes our idolatries. It often shows very clearly what we care or truly care most about in our lives. We can see how we value our various friendships in life. with The way we just jam-pack our schedules full of Christmas parties and social events and have to keep up with our friends and see them over the holidays. You can see how much we value our families. And spent, we spend hundreds of dollars either traveling to see people or, or buying gifts for them. And we spend lots and lots of time with them. Okay? And we, we obviously value our stuff. You can see that over Christmas. Christmas is undoubtedly the peak season of our materialism. Bookended by Black Friday and Boxing Day. We shop, we shop, we shop, we buy, and we worship what we buy, unknown, unbeknownst to us. You know that North Americans spend over $6 billion every year on Christmas decorations. Talk about excess. We also... Throughout Christmas, we often reveal a great deal of love for ourselves during Christmas. One example, obvious, we value our bodies in very conflicting ways, I might add. We First of all, we stuff them full of good food, and then afterwards, we set a New Year's resolution to burn off all that really good food, right? And amongst all the other things that we might worship over the holidays, we try to squeeze God in there. We do. Saying, God, remember, we worship you too. Don't forget that. We do. We, we'll go to church and, and we'll remember the real reason 
for Christmas, while our schedules or bank accounts might say something entirely different. Now, many of the things that we have made idols are actually good things. As you can recognize, some of those things are very good things. We should have them as very big parts of our lives. Okay, But when those things supplant God in terms of importance is when we make them an idol. Okay, Many good things, but only one truly great thing. And we get them out of order so often. Today, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible of your own, you can grab one in the pew and find this on page 807. Matthew chapter 2, page 807. We're looking at a very well-known story at the heart of the Christmas story, which I believe should remind us once again of who we should be worshiping throughout this season and help us to reorient our lives to that which matters most. Let's pray together as we begin, shall we? Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that your truth would go forth from these pages and make its way into our hearts. Mold us, shape us, change us, help us to truly see you for who you are and then worship you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done for us in coming to earth. And we pray that our hearts would be appropriately just overjoyed in that sacrifice you made this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you know, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke together for most of the past year and a half. Today, for our for final message before Christmas, we're jumping over to Matthew, okay? A different Gospel book that was written with a very similar purpose to tell the story of Jesus. And Matthew begins very similarly to Luke, telling us about Jesus' birth. Chapter 1 gives us a genealogy from Abraham to Jesus, and then it tells a bit of the backstory of Mary and Joseph, Jesus' earthly parents, and how privileged they were to experience the birth of the most special baby in history. It says this in, at the end of chapter 1 in verse 20, it says, An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up from sleeping, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Chapter 2 jumps ahead in that timeline, okay? Possibly by almost two years. But this is still considered an essential part of the original Christmas story, and you'll see why, okay? Verse 1 in chapter 2 says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, this is a very familiar story to us. But, are there any more mysterious characters in the Christmas story than the wise men? 
really, we don't know much at all about who these guys really were. They just show up out of the blue. We don't know what their names were, what their real names were. We have legendary names, no idea if they're true. We don't know what their backgrounds are, what their stories are. We know that they were likely some kind of astrologers who studied the stars. Maybe they were involved in some kind of magic arts, hence the name Magi, you might hear. Or it means magician. Okay? They weren't actually kings like many songs sing about. Okay, They might have had some royal ties. We don't know much about where they came from either. The Bible only says they came from the east. Perhaps Arabia, Persia, India, we don't know exactly where they came from. And we don't even know how many wise men there were. Maybe three, maybe more. Believe it or not, we don't even know if they rode camels. <laughs> That's just speculation. And to be honest, we don't need to spend lots of time on speculation about them. Okay? We should just seek to learn from them. God includes them in his word for a reason, and we should figure out why. So what does this story of the wise men tell us? What does it mean for us today? What does it tell us about ourselves? What does it tell us about God? Okay? There's several principles that I think we can learn from the wise men in their story. But we shouldn't just merely learn good morals from the wise men. Good things we can do. Those are good. But the wise men really point us to something greater than that. The wise men's story is not about the wise men. It's about Jesus. A point to something greater. They point to Jesus, and it's about their quest to find Jesus. See right away what they were looking for. It says, they came east from the east to Jerusalem saying, verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So they were looking for some special baby that had just been born, a king, one that they would worship. Neither these guys worshipped human kings in their culture, or, much more likely, they knew that they were looking for more than just a king. They have been clued in on this. So when I talk today about seeking a king today, I'm really referring to seeking more than just a king. We are seeking some, or searching for someone who will rule over our hearts as a king. But we are also searching for someone who will be the object of our worship, our God. That's who we're searching for. And the, the wise men here had seen a star, not just any ordinary star, a star sent by God, it had risen in the sky, and they realized that this star was a sign that something very special had happened in the world. We don't know what this star was, a comet, a, a supernova, a planetary alignment, probably some kind of supernatural light sent by God. Okay? But it was such a special star that they felt they had to do something about this star. They couldn't just sit there and admire its beauty. They actually had to follow the star. We don't even know how they figured this out. They had to follow the star. They probably had a number of wrong astrological superstitions. But in this case, they were right. Okay? God made sure that they figured things out correctly. 
in this, in this time. They deciphered, okay, that a baby had been born in the West. A baby who would be king. A baby who would be more than a king. Someone who deserved their homage, their reverence, and yes, their worship. So they set out on their quest. This was not just some jump in the car, let's go quest. Okay? It wasn't an easy trip. This had to evolve some serious commitments on their part. They had to commit their time to this quest. This would have been a journey that likely took weeks or even months for them to arrive at. Perhaps it meant time away from their families or other duties. They had to commit their resources for the journey, money for lodging or food or other traveling necessities along the way. To top it off, they didn't even know exactly where they were going. They were committing to an open-ended journey with very unknown ending. They were committing to a potentially extensive search for this king. Okay, And that's the first thing we're going to learn from their journey today, which applies to all of us. That seeking a king may indeed involve extensive searching. Seeking a king that we can rightfully worship may involve extensive searching. Some of you are on this journey right now. You're looking for a king. You're looking for a purpose in life. Why you're here on this earth. You're trying to find something to live for. Okay? For love, for success, for a cause, and you you're f- tried filling up your life with so many different things, many different idols. Okay, You maybe haven't tried to worship them, but effectually you have. Maybe you've heard about Jesus and he's piqued your interest, intrigued your curiosity about him. Maybe there's something to him, or maybe to faith as a whole. Or maybe you've heard of Jesus and You've already dismissed that idea. Dismissed the idea of following him. You're not curious about him, but you are still searching for something greater in your life. You're searching for that greater purpose. Listen to me. It could take very serious commitment from you to search for the truth. And I commend you if you are actively searching for the truth. It may take time, it may take work, it may take energy and effort, it may take persistence, it may take some serious thought, it may take extensive searching, and it may cost you. certainly costs the wise men here. But finding the truth, finding the king, finding your God is so, so worth it. Okay, just realize, keep going, keep searching, keep investigating, keep asking the hard questions, but just realize that preferably sooner than later, you've got to make a choice. Got to make a decision, because you don't know when the end of your life searching may come, and death may find you first. Are you ready? You're ready to face your Creator? Make sure you're ready to do that. Perhaps today you don't even know that what you're really searching for is a king. 
You haven't realized that you're seeking something or someone that you can worship. You may be searching for something in sex or love or drugs or alcohol or success or fun or friends or a host of other things. But what you're actually searching for in those things is God. Come today like the wise men and ask, where is he that has been born to be my king? Where is he? After traveling for many days, the wise men saw the star they'd been following come to a halt over Jerusalem. And they must have thought, okay, so this led us to Jerusalem, this prominent city in, in Israel, and they must have thought, okay, this king that's been born must be the Jewish king. Okay, he must be born to be the king of the Jews. And maybe, maybe the current king gave birth to a new son. That would make a lot of sense. And so maybe they thought their search would prove to actually be a pretty easy one after all. Earlier this year, of course you all know, Prince William and his wife Kate gave birth to a new baby prince. A new baby that is directly in line to be king one day. And if you were to go to London, trying to see... Prince George, where would you go? Buckingham Palace, right? <laughs> of course. Now, of course, the chances of you actually seeing this baby would be slim to none. But whatever. If you wanted to see a royal baby, you've got to go to the palace. That just makes total sense. And that's what the wise men thought. Where are baby kings born? Let's go find the palace. Okay? And so they started asking around, where is this one that's been born king. Where is the new king? It's obviously just been born. And they maybe went and presented themselves at the palace in Jerusalem saying, we'd like to see the new king. Please take us to him. But their search wouldn't prove to be that easy. In Jerusalem, no one seemed to know what they were talking about. The people were confused. What new king? We don't have any royal baby around here. What are you talking about? I mean, the palace is there. You can go there and you can talk to Herod if you really want to, but I don't know. He doesn't have a baby. And when King Herod heard of the wise men's request, he too was alarmed. What king? Verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Herod was understandably concerned about this. He hadn't had any baby himself, so... If a new king was truly born, it could only mean one thing. That there was some threat to his own throne. Some usurper out there somewhere. Who would threaten to, be his, to take his throne and be king. So Herod was troubled. Confused, alarmed, jealous for his throne's sake. So, we see him hatch a plot. One that could only be described as pure evil. And in this we see another principle for our searches today. That seeking a king is often opposed by evil. When we search for a king to worship, evil naturally opposes us. The opposition might not be obvious at all. Maybe pretty subtle. Pretty secret. Herod didn't try to openly stop the wise men's plan here. It says later on that he did this secretly. He didn't have them arrested for some kind of treason against the throne. He didn't tell them, 
no king's been born here, you're mistaken, just go home. Didn't do that. No, he did something much more devious. He decided that he would let them have their fun. He would, he would just favor their request, and, but then once they left, he would step in and kill this newborn king. Take away the threat. The details of this scheme only come out later, but it's pretty obviously that this is what Herod intended all along. Herod quickly put two and two together that this baby king, if he was actually out there, may have been the Jews' long-awaited Messiah, or Christ. The, the Messiah was this deliverer the Jews expected God would send them one day, and the Jews expected their Messiah to indeed become their king. Okay, They expected this. Their Messiah would be royal. He would be king. But for Herod, it didn't matter who the king was. A messianic king was just as much a threat to his throne. So look what he does. When King Herod heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ, there's the word, the Messiah, was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So as Herod thought, you know, this this might be serious what the wise men have brought to my attention. I better look into it. It might be very much in my best interest to find this baby king. So he went to the priests and scribes, his, uh, the, the experts in the law, the religious leaders, and asked them, tell me, where is the Christ supposed to be born? Bethlehem? Okay, thanks. Now, there's a lot of irony in this story. Commentator Matthew Henry points out this, that many times those who are nearest to the means are furthest from the ends. Maybe very close to Jesus and miss it entirely. That's what Herod did. And as so Herod set his plot into motion. Verse 7, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. It's like you say, hey, I think you guys clued into something that we didn't, okay? And if things are as you say, then we've got to get on this. So let me know when you find this king, because when you, because all of us, myself included, we should be honoring this king, okay? If he's our Messiah, we got to worship him, and here's, here, I'll give you a map. Here's where the child is supposed to be born. Messiah is supposed to be here. Good luck. Go with my blessing. Go find him. But evil was lurking underneath every word he said. When you are searching for Jesus, when you're searching for a king, the devil's going to try to stop you at every turn. He's going to send doubts into your mind. He's going to send temptations in your path that are, to try to keep you emotionally or physically tied to your sin. He's going to send you friends who will try to convince you that following Jesus is stupid. He's going to, he might try to bring other attractive spiritual options in front of you to choose from, like a buffet. 
He could try to make you suffer like he did with Job in order to try to get you to curse God. He will do whatever he can do to try to keep you from finding your king. We must recognize that any obstacles, any opposition to finding Jesus could be considered evil, could be placed there by evil. And if you already follow Jesus, a similar principle still applies. Any opposition to our faith, anything that distracts us, anything that keeps us from God, things that keep us from worshiping him or loving him or serving him, may in fact be put there by evil in order to trip us up. Don't be distracted. Fight for your faith. Pray for God's protection from evil. Put on the armor of God. We need it. Satan may buffet and trials may come, but God's regarded us as his children. And he will ultimately protect you from the devil's schemes. See this, regardless of evil's intentions, God's plans cannot be thwarted here. God wanted the wise men to find Jesus, and he would protect his son Jesus from evil. And as soon as the wise men left the palace with directions that they had been given from Herod, it's like God gave them a better set of directions. Okay, Verse 9 says, And after listening to the king, the wise men went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. It's like God gave them a heavenly GPS. (laughs) Follow this star. It's going to stop right over the house where you need to go. It led them directly to Jesus' door. Now, how we see the wise men respond here to this situation gives us a clear principle to see today for us. The finding a king. So after seeking, when we find a king, it should be accompanied by joy. When we find our king, the object of our worship, we should be filled with joy. Look what happens next. It says, And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They they weren't just merely happy here. They were exuberant. They were thrilled. It says they rejoiced. But not only that they rejoiced, it says they rejoiced exceedingly. And not only that they rejoiced exceedingly, they rejoiced exceedingly with joy. Okay, And that's not even enough. And for Matthew, it says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They were this excited that God had led them to their destination, that they had found the king that they were destined to worship. But think about that. Their purpose in even making this journey was to worship. That's why they went. They went to extreme lengths in order to bring homage to the one whom it was due. And as we'll see in a minute, they did indeed finish their visit with worship. So this ultimately is why they were so exhilarated. They got to worship. Thrilled about that. Are we that excited? 
We don't have to take a long journey to worship. We have the privilege of worshiping our God in spirit and in truth, wherever, whenever we wish, in song, in word, in deed. Are we excited about that? Sometimes we may think of worship as a duty, a burden, a right we have to do, a rule. Or maybe we think of it as boring or insignificant. How mistaken we are. Worship is mind-boggling, thrilling privilege and a gift to us from our God of love. How glorious that we get to praise the King to whom all praise is due whenever we wish. And why? All because Jesus came to earth at Christmas as the infant king. And that baby would open the floodgates of heavenly blessings on us when he as an adult would die for the sins of all mankind and then rise again. This is the greatest news to ever grace the face of the earth. The most freeing, amazing, beautiful, wonderful news of all time. The wise men set us a great example of how we should feel because of Jesus coming to earth. And really, joy is much deeper than just a feeling, right? Joy is a deep-seated state of mind that I will rejoice no matter what my circumstances in life because Jesus saved me. That's true joy. I will rejoice no matter what. We really should be the most joyful people anyone ever meets on earth. We should be irresistibly drawn to the joy of the gospel ourselves, and others should be irresistibly drawn to our joy. In every season of life, we should have joy. And I'd say, really, especially at Christmas. Because not only have we sought and found our King that we can worship, but in a much deeper and a much truer sense, Christmas is when the King sought us. Okay? We didn't go searching first. We weren't like the wise men. On our own, we would not pursue God. We would not follow after Him. We would not follow His star. But God loved us so much that He came to earth Himself, and He saved us even in our rebellious, sinful, godless state. Remember that truth this Christmas. Not only do we seek a king, but the king sought us. And that king found us. How great our joy should be. We've been found by the king. Final point for today is the natural outflow of that. The natural outflow of our joy. That finding a king should result in bountiful worship. When we find Jesus, we should fall to our knees in abundant, costly, bountiful worship. Look at the consummation of the wise men's journey in verse 11. It says, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. 
Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Notice, they had traveled so far. And yet, instead of making any demands on Jesus' family, like, we've come so far, can you please give us a bite to eat? Can you give us a place to stay for the night? All they did, they walked in, dropped to their knees at Jesus' small feet. He's probably a toddler by now. And they worshipped him. We don't know exactly what that entailed for them, what they did to worship him. We know it at least included the giving of gifts. I have no idea what Joseph and Mary would have been thinking during this. Can you, can you imagine? Crazy scene. Several strange, rich foreigners come traipsing into their humble house and, and then promptly fall to the ground to worship their little son. After which, they give Jesus some crazy, incredible gifts. A chest of gold coins and a bottle of expensive perfume and a bag of expensive spices. Pretty strange gifts for a baby. But by no means strange gifts for a king. This must have been a bewildering, confusing scene for Jesus' parents. But it certainly would have reminded them, once again, how special their son was. How special this baby that lived among them really was. We might think, well, why would the wise men give gifts like these to Jesus? And the simple answer is that whenever you visited royalty in that day, it was customary to give them gifts. And these men knew that they were visiting royalty. But more than that, giving gifts was one expression of their worship. They wanted to glorify or love Jesus by giving him gifts from their bounty, from their riches. And their worship was extravagant and bountiful, and it cost them something. I think we should consider, what is our worship costing us? Anything? Worship is costly. It's a sacrifice. In worship, we give something over to God, whether that be our heart, our adoration, our surrender, our devotion, our affection, maybe our reputation, our time, our energy, our our money, our acts of service, our love for others, all of these are forms that we can worship God, but it costs us something. What are our gifts in our worship? What are we giving to God to glorify Him? Think about that today. Think about that this season. What is our gift to our King? Theologians have speculated on deeper meanings for each of the wise men's gifts. And we have to recognize that it's merely speculation. However, it seems way too fitting that they offered these specific three gifts to Jesus to be coincidence. Gold seems to point to the fact that Jesus was a king, that he had a kingly nature. Frankincense shows us God's nearness, incense, presence, 
through Jesus' incarnation. Myrrh, a spice that's used primarily in burials, foreshadows Jesus' death. One of the newer, beautiful Christmas songs we sing, which we're actually going to sing in a minute, sings about their meaning. It says, Gifts of men from distant lands prophesy the story that gold, a king is born today, incense, God is with us, myrrh, his death will make a way, and by his blood, he'll win us. So as you read about these incredible gifts that were offered to Christ, let them remind you of the wonderful story that was prophesied that a king has come, and that king has sought you, the king has died for you, the king has found you. That's the message of the Magi. You never responded to this message before. I pray that you would today, desperately. I pray that God has gotten a hold of your heart. He wants to fill you with joy. He wants you to rejoice like the wise men did. And God only asks that we abandon our sins that, we've, that have separated us from him, and that we believe in Jesus, his son, that he came to earth, that he died and rose again to save us. If you'd like to do this today, I'd love to guide you through that. When we're finished in a few minutes, please come talk to me. Come find your purpose and life as a child of the living God, a worshiper of him, following him, worshiping him every day of your life. Charles Spurgeon, one of the most famous preachers of all time, says this about this scene of the wise men bowing before Christ. It says, Was God ever seen in such a worshipful form before? Behold, he bows the heavens. He rides upon the wings of the wind. He scatters flames of fire. He speaks, and his dread artillery shakes the hills. You worship in terror. Who would not adore the great and terrible Jehovah? But, Is it not much better to behold him here, allied to your nature, wrapped like other children in swaddling clothes, tender, feeble, next akin to your own self? Will you not worship God when he thus comes down to you and becomes your brother, born for your salvation? I want to pose that same question to us today. Will we not worship God when he has come down to us, become like us, being born for our salvation. What a worthy form to be worshipped in. Matthew wraps up this part of the story by showing how God did look out for Jesus, despite Herod's scheming says, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, the wise men departed to their own country by another way. You all know the story. God then has Joseph take Mary and Jesus to Egypt, where they spend a few years in order to escape Herod's wrath. And Herod did have wrath, spilling much innocent blood trying to find this king. But don't let the details here distract you from the main question this story 
poses to us. And the question that's still before us today, will we seek our king? Will we find our king? When, and when we find him, like many of us already have, will we worship him with joy? Jesus goes on later in his life to say, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. If we seek God with all of our hearts, we'll find him. Find him in his glory. And you know all those idols we talked about earlier? Those things that distract us from Jesus? The best thing to do about them is not to consciously avoid them, but instead to focus on Christ. If you worship Jesus and seek him first and put him first and truly worship him with your whole life, all the other priorities in our lives fall into place behind him. Okay, I love this quote from Mike Cosper. He says, every hymn of praise is a little anti-idolatry campaign. You want to fight in the campaign against the idols in your heart? Worship God. That's the best way to fight the battle. Praise Him. Worship Him. Come before Him today and every day. Bring your bounty to Him with songs, prayers, gifts, offerings of our entire lives for His glory. It is your indescribable privilege to do so. The wise men, no matter who they were or what their background was like, we can agree that they truly were wise. There was no better place to be, no more joyful place for them to be than to be worshiping at their God and King's feet. Won't you join them? Join them in worshiping your King today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're overwhelmed at your story, how you came and sought us out when we were far from you. Thank you so much for doing that, God. We, our words cannot express enough praise for what you've done. We pray that as we go from here, our hearts would be just overwhelmed with how great you are, how good you are, how loving you are for, to us and for us. We praise you. We want to worship you. Help us to do that. And we pray that as we do so, all the things that distract us will fall into place behind you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.